Okay, Nehemiah 8 is where we're at today, <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to have you stand as we read God's Word, and you're going to see why we're going to stand here in just a second, okay? And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattaiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah. Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Makajah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Carly is looking for a name for her baby. I think it's one of those. <laughs> on his left hand, <clears throat> Ezra, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, here's some more names, Jeshua, or Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Jazabed, Hanan, Padiah, the Levites, Help the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, so that the people understood the reading. <clears throat> and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send the portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that we have in front of us. We thank you, Father, that your word not only reveals our sin, but it also reveals the greatness of our Savior. God, I ask you to cultivate a deep and abiding joy in our hearts. God, we ask you to overwhelm us with the greatness of your plan and your redemption and our salvation and our inheritance. God, I pray that we would not sin against you by being unhappy with all that you are and all that you've done. Father, lead us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> hey, Larry, would you turn me up some? <clears throat> I think my, for some reason, my voice has given way. And did find the other two services, so. Okay, <clears throat> a little bit of recap of Nehemiah. 
So um, in case you haven't been here in our uh, series through the book of Nehemiah, here's a little kind of recap of, of the basic context of Nehemiah. So God had warned the people of Israel that if they, if they continued in idolatry and disobedience to him, that he would discipline them, right? And so unfortunately they did. And so God disciplined them by sending them into exile. Uh, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians. And in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. Okay, But God's a promise keeper, right? We know that, don't we? God's a promise keeper. <clears throat> and he had told Jeremiah the prophet that he would send his people into exile for 70 years. And sure, sure enough, 70 years goes by and, and God moves in the heart of a pagan king of Persia named Cyrus. And God moves in Cyrus's heart. To the point where he says, you know what, I'm going to let all the Jews go home. And so from that point, the Jews begin to return back to Judah and to Jerusalem. Not all at once, but it was in waves. Well, about a hundred years have passed since the Jews began to return to their homeland. And there's a man named Nehemiah who is a captive. He's a servant in, in in the court of the king of Persia. And Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is still in shambles that the wall is broken down, the gates are burned by fire. Essentially, it cannot thrive. It cannot flourish. And and when Nehemiah opens up his Bible and he sees that it is God's plan that, that Israel would be a light to the nations. It is God's plan that Jerusalem would be a light to the nations, that it would be a place of, of worship and a proclamation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Nehemiah gets a burden from the Lord. Now, remember what we talked about is a burden? A burden is when you know there's something in your life that ought to be that isn't, right? Or something in your life that, that is that ought not to be. In other words, a burden is when you look at the Word of God and, and you, you see very clearly, God says, my life, the kingdom, the church, my family, it ought to be this, and it's not. Well, Nehemiah was struck with, with, with the fact that Jerusalem was not what it ought to be. That burden led him to four months of prayer and fasting. Those four months of prayer and fasting led him to one great risk-taking moment where he comes before the king of Persia, uh, which he just didn't do, and he comes before the king and he says, I, I, I need to request a few things. Twelve years off my job. Um, military might and political clout to leverage the nations around Judah. And by the way, could I have all the materials I need to rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem? Well, the Bible says that God's hand was on Nehemiah. Normally, you just got killed at that point, you know? But God's hand is on him. And the king says, yeah, you can have, you can have all of that. And, and so Nehemiah travels back to Jerusalem Praise, plans, and builds, right? And through great opposition from many fronts, the wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt in 52 days. Now, that leads us to chapter 8, okay? So that kind of finishes up the seven chapters that we've been through. So right now, where it stands is the outer structure of Jerusalem is completely built. The wall is finished. But we all know that the outer structure really doesn't make a life, right? In order to be who we ought to be, in order for you to be who you ought to be in your family, in order for our families to be who they ought to be in this world, our inner life has to be rebuilt, right? And so beginning in chapter 8, Nehemiah begins to rebuild the inner life of the Jews who are in Jerusalem. Now, where we've been so far, we, we, we understand that fixing walls and gates demands things like timber from the king's forest and stones from the quarry. But rebuilding our lives, okay, rebuilding who we are, 
that is done with this resource, okay? Here's the building material with which we rebuild our spiritual lives, all right? And so, so what happens in chapter 8 is, is it says that all the people gather at the water gate, okay? That has nothing to do with the Nixon administration, okay? It's not a motel in this, all right? It's, it's actually a gate in the wall, okay? So they gather at this gate in the wall where there's this large courtyard, right? And it says all the people gathered. How many people was that? We don't know, but we do know in chapter 7, verse 66, it says the whole assembly together was 42,360 people along with servants who numbered 7,337. So it could have been, I mean, it wouldn't have to be, but it could have been upwards of 50,000 people. You know, again, we don't know if that really means all of them came, but the, the, the great majority of the people gather at the water gate and Ezra, they build a podium for him, a platform, and he climbs that platform, and he opens up the Word of God, okay? At this point, it would have been the first five books in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He opens up the Word of God, and when he does that, it says all the people stand, right? That's why we, we stood just a minute, moment ago when we read this passage, kind of giving re- reference to that. All, 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 the, all the people stood. And why did they stand? They stood in reverence for the Word of God. They stood because here's what they believed. The God of the universe, the God who spoke us into existence, the God who, whom our eternity is in His hands, He's about to speak. And, and you remember last week we talked about the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is when you take God seriously, like, like, like you don't take him for granted. You're not indifferent to him. You, you don't treat him casually. Like when he speaks, you listen. And so all the people stand, right? You, you see this in other countries more prominent than in America. I, I know on my first trip to India, we made the terrible mistake of we would go into a little hut or whatever, and they'd have little folding chairs, little lawn chairs sitting in the front for us to sit on. Nobody else had them. We had them. And, and a lot of times I would sit down, and then while somebody was singing or something, I, 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 might, I might put my Bible on the ground so I could clap. They have a lot, you know, really animated worship. And as soon as I put my Bible on the ground, a young Indian man would come up, and he would pick it up, and he would say, I will hold it for you. And they didn't want to be, you know, we didn't figure, we're slow learners. We didn't figure out right away, you don't put your Bible on the ground. And in fact, we're riding in a, in a van together, you know, and we're all kind of packed in there and there's no place to put your stuff. And so a lot of times instead of holding, I would have my book and my, 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 my bag and my, you know, and I would just put it on the ground. And, and again, a, a, a young Indian guy who was riding with us, he would grab me and say, I will hold it for you. you know? And finally we realized, you don't put your Bible down, you know, you either put it on a desk or a podium or, you know, but you don't put it on the ground because they revere the word of God. For them, this is the word of God. In India, in the gypsy communities, in Romania, whenever you, whenever you open up the Word of God, the women will automatically, you know, shawl, they'll, they'll cover their head. You know, it's just a way to show, hey, we, we, God is speaking here. So, so they revere the Word of God, and they're attentive to the Word of God. Notice in verse, um, where is it, verse 3, where it says, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I looked that up in Hebrew, and, and, and the word attentive is not in there in Hebrew. Literally in Hebrew, it says, The ears of the people were to the law. You know, I almost like that better. You know, it's almost, it's like when, when you get to be some of our age, uh, I've noticed, I don't, uh, Emma would probably say this, I never heard well, but um, I've noticed that I have a harder time hearing the kids sometimes, you know, and so, so you know, they'll be talking or somebody talking in the other room, and, and I, I gotta, I gotta do this number, like, you know what, I mean, that's what they're doing, so they stand, and, and, and Ezra begins to read, and they lean forward, they're attentive to the word of God. The Bible says that in verse 3, 
that Ezra read from the first five books of the Bible from early morning until midday. Now, I was trying to think, what's the definition of early morning? Like, what time is that? And, and I think what I concluded is, I think we get a lot of different answers, right? For some of you, right now is early morning, okay? And uh, for others of you, you know, you were up since 4.30, you know? And uh, so, uh, what is the definition of early morning? I, look, I looked it up in Hebrew, and, and it, it's pretty clear there because it means daylight. It means dawn. It means first light. All right, so let's just say that's 7 a.m., you know, depending on where you are in the world and when the sun comes up, where you are. So let's say it's 7 a.m., and let's say midday represents noon. We're talking about five to six hours of reading the Word, okay? Now, they didn't just read the Word, though, okay? It wasn't like Ezra's just, like, reading through Solomon. No, 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 that's where all those other guys came in, okay? So, so all those names I read, what are those guys doing? Well, they're, 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 they're small group leaders, actually, so... That's what we would call them today. So like in verse 7, you have all those guys. And then it says, And the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. See that? So the people understood the reading. So I kind of picture that Ezra would read a certain section out of Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus, or Numbers or Deuteronomy, and, and then, then there would kind of be a break, and all those men would go through the crowd, and they would maybe gather crowds into you know, smaller groups, and they would help the people, all right, do you understand what this means? Do you understand how we apply this? How can we obey this? How can we respond? It's really what we do here at Lincoln, right? We have this time together in larger groups, three of them in the morning, and then tonight, We'll come together in our small groups, right? Hopefully you'll go to somebody's house and you'll gather in a group of 10 or 15 and you'll have prayer and you'll eat together and you'll encourage each other and you'll talk about victories of the week and then at some point you'll say, okay, now how do we, how do we live out what we heard today? What does it mean to have joined the Lord? What does it mean to respond in obedience to the word of God? And, and I have this question and you know, what was it, right? You begin to unpack the word of God. You help one another to obey what you've read. So that's what's happening here. Now, what's really interesting is is that this results in a bunch of crying, okay? So, so the Word of God is spoken, it is taught, it is discussed, it is lived out, and as that is happening, you know what you begin to hear? Sobs. You begin to hear weeping. You begin to hear crying. You're like, man, that's not good news. Actually, it is good news, okay? Because what happened is, the people began to weep. Note, notice some um, verse uh, 9. So this day, kind of in the middle of the verse, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they cry when they heard the Bible? Well, the short answer to that is that Romans 3.20 tells us that the knowledge of the law brings about the knowledge of sin. So understanding the law. So, so the law brings the knowledge of sin. In other words, when we open up our Bibles and when we read what God's plan for us is and who he has made us to be, you know what? We realize we have fallen short. We realize we have sinned against him. We realize that the mess that is our lives, much of that is because of our own sin. The people would have realized that the brokenness of Jerusalem, the brokenness of their nation, the brokenness of their land, the, 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 the hundreds of years by now, the two centuries in which they have not been who God created them to be was because of the sin of their fathers and that they were still living in that same sin. And guys, that's a good thing. The Word of God should do that in your life. Now, it doesn't end there, okay? Here's how we ought to think of it. The Word of God first brings brokenness that then leads to indomitable joy, all right? You, you see that? That's where that's coming, all right? So, so it's almost like you have to walk through the valley of brokenness to get to 
the indomitable joy. If you never face your own sin, if you never face the reality of the idols in your life, if you never face the reality of your own selfishness or your anger or your pride or your immorality, if you don't face those things, you can't get to God's joy. Right? And so what happens here is what ought to happen. When, when we open up the Bible and, and we read a passage in the scriptures and it says, all right, my marriage ought to look like this. It ought to look like Christ in the church. And I look at my marriage and I'm like, it doesn't look like that. Then that, that, ought, that ought to tear me up. I ought not justify my sin. I ought not blame it on somebody else. I ought to face the reality that, you know what? I'm not what I ought to be. And that ought to tear me up. But not permanently. Because that brokenness should lead to joy. And folks, we, we should not skip this step. I, I worry about people who, who skip this step. I worry about people that, that can read the Bible, and, and, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know how to explain this. I think you explain it by, it's folks who don't revere the Word of God, they, they don't fear the Lord, and they're not attentive to His Word, but there are people that can read the Bible. They can read clearly what it says about anger, and they've got an angry heart, and they just right over the top. They can read what the Bible says about immorality, and they're in an immoral relationship, and, and they do not move, they do not respond, there is no brokenness. Guys, this is the God of the universe who is saying, this is life and death. This is your soul forever. And, and so we ought to be broken by our sin. In fact, you can't begin to rebuild. This whole series is on rebuilding our lives as, as they ought to be, right? But you can't rebuild unless you first come to grips with what's broken. Tor a tornado came through our town a few years back. Remember that? Um, and you know, as I watched kind of the whole neighborhood right down below us, that whole neighborhood being rebuilt, you know what I never saw? I never saw anybody rebuild on the rubble, you know? Like, like, like you know, if you remember when it came through, there were roofs collapsed and houses just, you know, just nothing but debris and cars and sofas and, you know, just, just a mess. And I never saw anybody say, you know what, we're not going to deal with that mess. We're just going to bring the concrete truck in and we're going to lay a foundation on top of it, you know? And, and we're just going to build right on top. It'll just be a little higher than it was before. I didn't see anybody do that. You know what I saw people do? I saw them in tears going into the mess and cleaning out the mess and, and, and cleaning that clear off. Sometimes I saw people breaking out foundations and laying a brand new foundation to begin to build. That's exactly what Nehemiah is doing right here. All right? The, the word of God is read, and the people at first, they, they weep. Why do they weep? Because they realize my sin has made this mess, and we've got to deal with the sin. But they, but they don't end there. The weeping leads to indomitable joy. The New Testament says that's exactly what should happen in our lives. There's this funny passage in, in 2 Corinthians 7 where, where Paul is talking to the church at Corinth and he says, as it is, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved and repenting. Now, if, if, you, if you pay attention to what Paul is saying there, he's saying, man, I'm really glad that you're sad. Isn't that what he's saying? I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Paul says, man, I know you're grieved. I know you're crying. I know you're broken. I know you're weeping. And man, I'm really happy about that. You know, is Paul some kind of mean guy? No, no. He's saying there, 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 there are good, there's a good grief and there's a bad grief. Let me keep reading. Okay, so uh, into verse nine. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. See, Paul, Paul is saying, man, I'm so glad that you had that kind of brokenness because that kind of brokenness leads to salvation that nobody ever regrets. Right? That's, that's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8. 
There is the reading of the Word of God, the explaining, the teaching, the preaching, the, the small groups coming together. And there is at first a brokenness over sin, but it does not end there. But rather that brokenness leads to joy. So, so here's what happens in verse 9 and 10. Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites who taught the people, they, they come in and they're like, okay, enough, enough crying, enough crying. No, no more crying, but rather now you, you, you need to celebrate. All right, enough crying, now go celebrate. In fact, they tell them, go eat a big meal. Are you not happy about that today, huh? That's the only command you're going to remember today, isn't it, right? Hey, I, the Bible said go eat a big meal, you know? Go celebrate, right? Go, go feast, right? Go, go, go rejoice. Go share with those in need. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is it, is it strange to you that Nehemiah and these guys would tell people to stop being sad and start being happy? Do you do, you do that? Some of you do that to your kids because I've heard you, you know, right? Hey, stop that. Be happy, you know, right? But, but it's, not really, it's not really weird because what, what, what we say, what Nehemiah is saying is he is saying, there, what, we not only read about our sin in this word, but you know what else we read about in here? We read about the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the greatness of our God who has accomplished our eternal salvation through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Right? That we don't just read about sin. We read about God's solution of sin in His Son, Jesus. And, and, and so what Paul, or what, what the Bible is saying here, when he says, don't mourn or weep because the joy of the Lord is your strength, he is saying, there are things so good in here. God's plan is so great in here that we ought to be happy. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are joined to the resurrection of the Son of God, if you have the inheritance of Christ in you and for you forever and ever, you ought to be happy. You see, there are times in life where it's wrong not to be happy. You know, I think some people look at happiness as like, well, I can't control it. I either am or I aren't, you know. I, I don't believe that because the Bible continually commands happiness. It commands you to be joyful. And, and I think we understand that because I think we do the same thing, Right? Let me give you a couple of illustrations, okay? 26 years ago, um, the doors opened at First Baptist Church in Scott City, Kansas, and out walked the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. You know, it was my, it was my wife. I got to marry her, you know? And, and here she came in her beautiful, stunning dress and had her hair all spiffed up just right and makeup, you know? And just here she comes, and I'm just, and, you know, wow. And, and I'm thinking, man, this lady is, is she's, she's given her life to me, and we're going to be joined together as a picture of Jesus Christ in the, ch- in the church forever and ever. And here she comes. And what if she walked down that aisle and I took her hands? And, have you ever noticed that couples, they whisper, you know, when they're up there? You know, I noticed that I'm right up there. They're like, not, they're not listening to me. They're talking, you know. And when they get, what if she's up there? And and what if after all that she comes down the aisle and everything? And I'm sitting there, and I just got this scowl on my face, and I'm just, you know. And and she's like, "What's wrong, honey?" And I'm just like, "I'm just having a bad day," you know. <laughs> now knowing my wife, I know what she would have said. She would have said, "Well, you're gonna have a bad life if you don't change that real quick," you know. <laughs> I, I I mean I know I, she would have said exactly that, right? You know why why would she have said that? It's not a time to be sad, you know? Why? All of this, right? All, all that you are getting. This is a good thing. This is a great thing. It's a glorious thing. You ought to be happy. I got my firstborn here from Washington, D.C. She went ahead and had surgery, emergency surgery, last night or night before, I don't know. Got on a plane. Here she comes, right? What if, what if 
the same beautiful wife that I got to marry a few years later. You know, we're in Bolivar, Missouri, and she's travailed for nine months with a baby. And we're there in the delivering room, and after many hours of labor, here comes this beautiful little girl. And they clean her up, put her on her mama's chest, and cut the umbilical cord, and then they put her under that light and clean them all up, and vital signs are good, and I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, you know, I'm counting, yeah, everything's good, man, healthy baby, look over, Emma's doing great, and, and, but what if I would have just been like, honey, can I go now, it's, it's just been so tiring, you know, and this whole thing just put me in a bad mood, that's wrong, okay, guys, all right, I said that in the second service, and I had a lady punch her husband in the, in the arm, no joke, real, real, I'm like, what did you do? If you want to know who it was, ask me afterward. I don't feel comfortable saying that word. But it's really funny. But is that not a situation where, like, if, if you're not happy right then, then there, there's something wrong, right? Correct, right? If you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. You ought to be happy. Okay, now, as good as marriage is and as good as having you know, a healthy baby is, what you have in Jesus Christ, do you believe this? What you have in Jesus Christ is infinitely better. So you ought to be happy. I mean, that's, where, that's what Nehemiah is saying here. When he says the joy of the Lord is your strength, here's, here's what I believe. Okay, so listen, listen I'm going I'm to say this sentence a couple times because I really believe it's important, all right? Joy is the practical expression that you believe and love what you have in God. Okay, so, so as you open up the word, right, just anywhere, okay? So John 11, I'm the resurrection of life. You know, he who believes in me shall never die, all right? If you, if you believe and if you love what is in here? Will that not bring joy? The practical expression of that, that you believe it, that you love it, is, is joy. It's, 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 why we, it's why we sing. That's why it's super discouraging to Bonnie when, you know, we're singing, you know, victory in Jesus and you're out there. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Sought me and bought me. I don't know why you're laughing because there's a lot of that that goes on, you know. Is that really? You're happy about it, aren't you? And it's the practical expression. Joy, our joy. But what that says is, man, I, I love what Jesus has done. I love who God is. Do you think God's joyful? I think he is. You know, it's funny how people, different people see God, right? Some people just seem angry. He is angry at sin, by the way. You know why he's angry at sin? I mean, because sin is evil and wicked and, and it, it dishonors him. But let me, let me give you a, a practical reason maybe to hold on to. Sin brings misery. In the catechism that Haven and I learned, one of the questions is what, is, what, what does sin bring? And sin brings misery. And so God is angry with sin. But God is not an angry God. 1 Timothy 1.11 describes him as the blessed God. The, the word blessed is, it's a word that could be translated joyful, could be translated happy. I, I like happy, the happy God, isn't that cool? God gives you the Holy Spirit when you put your faith in him. What does the Holy Spirit do in you? There's a, a, a passage in Galatians that describes what happens when you yield to the Holy Spirit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? Uh, many of you have memorized it, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, right? Love, joy. 
The fruit of the Spirit is joy. What about Jesus? Yeah, a really cool verse in John, John 15, 11. It says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I love that. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things. I'm, I'm telling you, the context of that is I'm telling you about abiding in me. I'm telling you about the branch and the vine, being connected in, to, in, in, with it, in a vital union to the Son of God. And I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Matthew 25, 21 describes for us the life of a faithful person. And, and the reward is described in this way. It says, enter into the joy of your master. Someday God will say, if you've been faithful to him, if you've trusted him and lived for him, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy. of your, It's almost like there's this ocean of joy and you enter into it. You enter into the, the joy of your master. Our Savior Jesus in, in Hebrews 12 two, as he is about to take on more pain and agony and suffering and darkness and sin and filth than any man has ever taken on, and in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see, our God's a joyful God. That, that is his characteristic. This one's gonna blow you away. Zechariah three seventeen. Are you ready? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings. He sings over his people joyfully. Why, why, how, you might ask, you know? I mean, some of us are looking at our lives and we're like, man, how, how, does, how does God sing over me? Well, well let, me, let me explain to you what happens in salvation. Here's God's incredible redemption plan, right? We're broken, sinful, busted people, and, and he knows that, so he sent Jesus Christ, right? He, he sends his own son to put on human flesh and to live the perfect life that you and I have not lived, okay? And God is pleased with his son. Did you know that? So in, 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 during his baptism, when, when, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, there's a voice that comes from heaven from God the Father, and it says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? So God is well pleased with his son, Jesus. And so Jesus lives the perfect life, with him, a life with whom God is well pleased, and then he dies a brutal death on your behalf for you. And, and he dies that death so that he might raise from the dead and that by faith you can be connected to Jesus. You can share his life. So now God who is pleased with Jesus is pleased with, that's amazing, isn't it? That make you happy? That makes me happy. That God is pleased with me in Jesus because of Jesus. So what we find in the Bible is this continual command to rejoice in this great God, all right? In the character of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the plan of God, the redemption of God. You're told to rejoice. Now, what verses demonstrate that? Ah, oh, man, all of them. They're everywhere, okay? So, so what I did just for fun is I opened up my, my Bible to the book of Psalms, and, and I just browsed. I did not read them. I didn't read them. That was too much effort for me last night, all right? I didn't read them. All I did was skim and, and I just really look for things that I'd underline, and, and, and it's everywhere. So let me just, I skim through the verse 20 chapters, and here, here were my, my favorites, okay? Um, Psalm 4, 7. You, you have put more joy in my heart than they, than they have when their grain and wine abound. John, or, why do I keep saying John? Psalm 5, 11. 
But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Psalm 9. Psalm 9, verse 2. I will, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And this one's my favorite. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now that's just skimming through the first 20 chapters. God is an infinitely joyful God. And he shares his life with us in his son Jesus. His plan is that you would be joyful in him. And and one of the ways that we do that is by his word. That's one of the functions that that the word of God serves in your life. If you're not happy, one of the things I would ask you is, are you you in the word? Like, Like if... I guess, you know, if, you never, if you're never in the Word of God and you're always looking at the rest of life, well, yeah, you're probably sad because it's kind of bad, you know? Like, like if all you read is Trump's Twitter account and you don't read the Word of God, you know, you might think, man, this thing's looking pretty dark, you know? Things are not going real great, you know? If all, if all you read is the National Enquirer, you might, you're scared to death of UFOs, you know? And, and, and you've, not, you've not delved into who God made you in Jesus Christ. So the Word of God is this, is this functional way that ramps up our joy because it reminds us of all that God has done. It reminds us of, of God's promise to Abraham, like this 99-year-old guy who's got no children, who can't have children, and against all odds, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And then everything goes wrong for centuries, right? Like, like, like Abraham and Sarah can't conceive, and, and, then, and when they do, God says, okay, now give him back, you know? And Abraham lets his wife get, you know, tossed into a harem, you know? And, and, and there's rebellion, and there's failure, and there's war, and there's attack, and, and all of this. And, and through all of that, God is amazingly faithful. And he brings about his son, Jesus, through the nation of Israel. We look back, and we see shepherd boys defeating giants we see multitudes fed with little boys lunches we see lepers cleansed and enemies vanquished and dead brothers raised and we see all the glorious deeds of the lord we look back and we see the life and death of jesus christ who stayed on the cross to be your champion to pay the penalty for your sin we look forward in the scriptures did you know that you can look forward in the scriptures too they tell us what's going to happen we look forward to that day when jesus christ is going to come we're going to see him face to face and we're going to be made like him completely isn't that going to be good we're going to be made like him and then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and there's going to be no more tears and jesus says he's going to make all things new Man, that that is the joy of the lord now here's what nehemiah says he says the joy of the lord is your strength okay now that's that's a verse worth memorizing you know because how many times are you tired right you're tired now aren't you why don't we sleep better? I don't know. But you're tired. And, and like initiative-wise, like the mission of God, reading your Bible, being a person of prayer. You know, you, you have a hard time even praying, right? And now, now Dustin and Kara come, and they're like, hey, pray for turkey. And you're like, I can't even pray for this week, Thanksgiving, you know. I'm just too tired, too much on my plate. I just can't get it done. Have you ever wondered if everybody always assumes, here's our assumption, whenever we are Whenever we struggle with the work of the kingdom, our assumption is we're too busy. 
And, and that's just, honestly, that's a tired excuse, isn't it? It's a tired excuse because when, 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 when are things going to be different? I, I don't think they ever will. I, I think more at the root of why we struggle to pray like we ought to, why we struggle to be in the scriptures like we ought to, why we struggle to, to um, be about the work of the kingdom, why we struggle to share truth with, with others, why we struggle to make disciples who will make disciples, why we struggle to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think more to the effect of that is we lack joy. Have you ever, have you ever thought, my problem is I need more joy? I, I think that's true. Whenever we feel a lack of zeal for the kingdom, I think I ought to come back right and say, okay, am I happy in Jesus? Am, am, I, am I grabbing onto the word of God and am I feasting on all these incredible things that have been done and will be done and that God has accomplished and who he is and what he's gonna do? Am I, am I joyful in him? Because that's the engine, right? That, that's the engine that makes it, I don't need to despair. I, I don't need to live in the past with my failures. If you're here this morning and you have made rubble of your life in the past, You know what the good news is? You ought to weep over that. You ought to repent and mourn over your sin. And then you go directly to the cross of Jesus and it's taken care of forever. And you don't have to live there anymore. You don't have to be there. The joy of the Lord is is your, your strong tower. It's the engine that enables us to be secure and confident and hopeful in a broken world. It's the engine that propels us into the mission of God to accomplish His will. It's the, it's the engine that causes a young couple to pack up and move to one of the darkest places spiritually on the earth. It's the joy of the Lord. Man, if you try to do that without joy, I, I think you run out of gas. I think if you try to do anything with Jesus without joy, you run out of gas. I, I think the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so a really big thing on our plate is cultivating joy in God. I, don't know, I think it was George Mueller, maybe. Great orphanage builder, Salvation Army guy. Was it Salvation? Yeah, I think so. Or, yeah. I think, I think, if I remember, it was him that said, the first business of the day is to get my heart joyful in God. I mean, that's, that's a great first for the day what do i need to do more than anything today i need to get my heart joyful in god and i I just know even with my family i am a different guy when i'm joyful in the lord than when i'm discontent with everything you know kicking dirt thinking all is bad i'm i'm not near the dad and husband without joy the joy of the lord is your strength man i hope you want that I'm really convinced that all of us just, we simply do what we want to do. I know everybody's going to argue with that. You're going to be like, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. But you want a paycheck worse than you want to not go to work. So you go. I mean, I think we do what we want. We, we, do, what, we do what we think will find joy. You know, I, I think the drug addict who has made a shamble of their lives, I think in some broken way, they continue to go back, not only because there's a physical addiction, I understand all that, but, but I think they continue to go back because they're looking for, they're looking for joy. And they, they, they don't know where they can find it. But they know here, here is an hour of joy. That's so broken. One of, one of the ways you could describe sin it would be looking for joy without God. Looking for joy in everything but God. That, that's, that's a good way to describe sin. And it's always broken. So I want you to have joy. 
That, that joy does lead through sorrow for, for our sins. It leads through facing the reality of sin and then going straight to the gospel and straight to the cross that we might have the joy of the Lord that's our strength. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you for all that you've done. God, I thank you for all that you've done through your son. I thank you for all that you've done through your Holy Spirit. I thank you for all that you've done for us and that you will do for us, that you've promised to do, that you will never let us down. God, I praise you for all that we know that you are and all that we're gonna experience of you in the future. And God, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you'd cultivate in us just a great joy over you and and because of you and in you. And God, I pray that that joy would make us strong for the work. Father, I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.